0: Thank you so much. You can be seated. You can be seated. But because before we pray over the Word of God today, I just want to share a story with you. Um, I'm tearing up over here listening to Pastor Adam. And so can I just tell you a story? And I love what Taneja said. I do not want you to view me as a guest. I am family. We are working the same ground, pioneering for the same kingdom. And so I truly want you to see me as extended family, just North, Northern Maine. Um, but the first time I ever met your pastor was, he, he nailed it. I called him up and, I, and somebody, we were planning a church through ARC and they said, there's another church out there. You got to talk to Pastor Adam. And so my first impression of Pastor Adam was, you know, I was sharing with him, hey, you know, we're coming up there. And he started to cry over the phone. <laughs> So it's just hilarious, man, that he's like crying on there. And if any of you have spent any amount of time here, you know that he has, and I mean this the most endearing way, he has the most sensitive heart. And that was my first impression of him. And my second impression of him is as we were getting closer and our family, you know, we sold everything that we had, we packed up a U-Haul and, um... And uh, we got ready to come across the country and it was right after shelter in place. It was super weird. It was like a zombie movie because we were driving across the nation and there were no cars on the road. It was just super weird. Everybody remember that? Yeah, sure. And so um, we had reached out to a bunch of churches and we asked, hey, we don't know anybody. So we knew no one when we moved here. And we said, could you send some people to help us move? Um, And we showed up, we signed for our house and nobody came. And so it's me, my wife, and we have six kids. That's two hands, okay? You know, when you're good at something, just go for it. So we were just having kids, and, and, and they're little, though. They can't really move much. And, and my wife and I were just looking like literally no, no one. And all of a sudden, Pastor Adam and Pastor Tanya show up. And they said, hey, they drove two hours north to help us unload our truck, never having met us, just... A Crying phone call that's all we ever had in our relational tool belt. And uh, they said, Our son Graham has a game in two hours, so we have to drive back there. But we want to give you everything that we had. So quickly, we were like, What's the heaviest stuff? The gun safe, and that's okay to say gun safe, right? Nobody's gonna figure out, okay. We're in Maine, right? Okay, and gun safe, and we're moving all this stuff. We had no food we had no water, we were like the worst hosts. But I wanna tell you, Pastor Adam was drenched in sweat. And every second that he was there, I put him to work. We felt so terrible that we didn't have anything to offer them, and the fact that he drove two hours north to move for two hours, to drive two hours back to Graham's baseball game, was starting to share his story. He's crying because we're coming to partner alongside him. He's coming to serve. And then the third, and this is where actually you guys come in. It was our first Christmas here. Again, we didn't know anybody. We walked away from a decently paying job to plan a church. So we're cutting coupons. And it was just, you know, in the beginning, things were very, very tight. And Pastor Adam reached out to us and said, you know, there's something that God's put inside of our heart. Our church wants to buy presents for your children. And so all of you played a role in that. Now I'm going to cry, but um, it just meant the world to me. So when I say that I'm not just a guest, that I am family, I want you to truly uh, see me as that, because that is how I view you. And it is an honor, and it is a privilege to be here. And I just want you to know how blessed you are to have Pastor Adam and Tanya. As your pastor, I've traveled all around the United States, literally hundreds and hundreds of churches. And these two have hearts of gold, such a servant's heart. You know, the Bible, the only place it says to give double honor is to those who labor in word and doctrine. So I just want you to take a second and imagine the word honor, what it looks like, how it manifests in our lives. And the Bible says, double down. On that. So I hope that you recognize and understand the gift that you've been given in Pastor Adam and Tanya. And it's true. I talk to Pastor Adam every single day. And sometimes he encourages me, and sometimes he corrects me, sometimes he challenges me, and almost every day he cries. But it's all good. I am ready to share the Word of God with you. And so, how many of you just want to hear a message today? or you actually want your life changed. By a show of hands, how many want their lives to be changed, okay? Yes, Yes, absolutely. Well, the Bible says you have not because you ask not. So I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet, and we're going to go to God in prayer, and we're going to believe that our lips carry the power of life and death. So dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the Refuge Church. I thank you for the message that you've entrusted to me. Holy Spirit, I admit my complete and utter dependence upon you. Apart from you, I can say and do nothing. So I am asking you to anoint my words, that they would hit their intended target, and that the seed of your word would impregnate the hearts of everyone under the sound of my voice and that those seeds would grow into fruition. I thank you for dreams being captured today, destinies being received today, healing in the room today. And God, we give you all the praise and all the glory because you are worthy. And it's in Jesus' matchless, awesome, majestic name. And everybody that agrees shouts, amen, amen. And let's give him thanks in advance for what he is going to do. You can go ahead and take a seat. All right. So a couple of things you should know about me. I am from the Northeast, so I'm gonna give it to you straight, but you guys get that. And I'm also Italian, so I speak with my hands and I'm loud. I just can't help it, that's just the way that God wired me. So I hope that you're okay with that. Um, How many of you know truth is not subjective? However, it is subject to a journey. And so today we're gonna journey in God's word on a topic that I feel, has been brushed over in many spheres of Christianity. But as you study the word of God, you'll find that it's absolutely essential in our relationship with Christ. And to do that, I want to start with another story, if you would indulge me. And so when I was in Bible college, and Bible college is kind of an interesting place. It's kind of like normal college, but instead of drinking beer, people are peddling like essential oils. Um, it's kind of like a Dave Matthews concert. Nobody wears their shoes. And um, it's just an interesting place. And we had this guest minister one day. And, um, you know, everybody's like chomping at the bit. Every time the guest minister says anything, like someone will run around the room or jump on top of their chair. It was a charismatic uh, Bible college. And so this, this minister, he shared he, this statement. He said, you can have as much of God as you want. And the room went ballistic. People were running around with no shoes on, getting in the back of their seats, shaking it like a Tom Cruise Oprah interview. And it was just like the place was going down. And then he dropped this statement and the room went completely silent. And he said, in fact, you can have as much of God as you want. In fact, you already do. And I remember my heart sunk down into my chest because there was no way that I had as much of God as I wanted. And as I began to meditate, and don't let that word, you know, freak you out meditate. It doesn't mean sit crisscross applesauce and open up your third eye. Meditation is actually a biblical concept. If I could give you a definition, it's literally the digestive system of the soul. And so as you hear scripture, you begin to ruminate, you begin to think on it, and then you invite the Holy Spirit into the process and he begins to illuminate and show you things that you didn't previously see. How many times have you read a scripture and then years later you read it again and you said, I have never seen that before. And it's like this revelation. It's the same words you read three years ago. And you didn't even have to open up your third eye. And as I began to think about what that minister shared that morning, I was reminded of James 4.8, one of the most beautiful scriptures in all of the Bible. James 4.8 says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Who draws first? We do. Think about this. There's something that we can do, that you can do, that I can do, that will make the creator of heaven and earth come closer to us. You know what that tells me? That scripture tells me that we determine how close we are with God, not God. (laughs) In fact, can I make this statement that God is more passionate about being in a relationship with you, speaking to you every single day, showing you the mysteries of the kingdom than you are about being in a relationship with Him? Psalm 139, 17 through 18 says this, this is out of the New Living Translation How precious are your thoughts about me, O God! They are innumerable. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. Do you know God's intentional about using imagery? He uses that imagery because He wants to get those wheels spinning inside that head of yours. He wants you to take the time to actually think and meditate and ruminate on what He just shared with you. So let's take a minute and indulge me. Think about every single beach, every single desert on the earth, every single golf course, every single sandbox, and God is saying that the thoughts he has about you personally outnumber every single grain of sand. How many of you know fishers exaggerate, right? You ever get this, like, you, you catch a fish and it's like, look at this sucker, and the camera's right here, it's like three inches, but it looks like it's like 12 inches because of your, your iPhone 13, right? Or a or homeboy at the gym that's like, yeah, I mean, I could bench 315, like, no big deal, but you've never seen him do it? You're like, sure, dude, sure, homeboy, you can do that. People exaggerate, even ministers exaggerate, but God cannot exaggerate because exaggeration is a lie. So if God says that his thoughts for you personally outnumber the grains of sand, he is take, he's saying that in a literal sense. Well, where do you get that, Matt? Well, I just told you, Psalm one thirty nine seventeen. But if you go to the scripture previous, and I didn't post this, Psalm one thirty nine sixteen says that every moment of your life was recorded... Before a single day had passed, think about that. Not the major decisions that you'd do, not who you'd marry, what you'd end up doing with your life, but every single moment, before you ever drew a breath, God penned everything every single moment of your life. There is a book in heaven of the destiny, calling, dreams, whatever label you wanna slap on it, of your life. And no one is more passionate about seeing you walk in the fulfillment of that dream, destiny, or calling than God, because God imagined it when he thought of you. And when he was knitting you together in your mother's womb, again, why is God using this imagery to convey to you that you were not made in a factory? You were not made in an assembly line. Think about when you knit something together, when you crochet. I personally don't crochet, but I've seen people crochet. You have to pay attention to every detail of what you're doing, and God is trying to get Into your mind and into your heart, more importantly, how much time he took in making you unique. That's how much he loves you. In fact, can I even say this? That A.W. Tozer said that every single one of us were created with a God shaped whole. And no amount of sex, status, or stuff is ever going to be able to satisfy that longing. Only a relationship with our creator because that's the way that you were designed. So not only for you to walk in fellowship, in relationship, in intimacy with God, but for you to be able to step into your destiny and calling, that's outside of you. You have to partner with God in order to be able to walk in that. And that's the way that God designed it so that you would be in relationship with him. So that pride wouldn't enter your heart and that you would stand on your accomplishments in vanity, thinking that somehow you pulled yourself up by the bootstraps and you accomplished this. And God said, no, 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 no. I'm going to make your calling, your destiny, the dreams that I place inside of your heart, I'm gonna make it at the end of your intellect, at the end of your experience, at the end of your physical gifting, so that you have to take that first step of faith before you even walk into the beginning of that dream, calling, and destiny, which makes you completely dependent upon Him. That makes me happy. That's exciting stuff. But let me just share something, okay? As I shared how much God loves you, as I shared how much God has planned your future, not just the big things, but every single moment, I've seen the look in some of your eyes and all across the nation. Most people will nod their head and say, Yeah, I know that. I've heard that before. I've read those scriptures too, man. I got a Bible. But how many of you know there's a difference between knowing something and living in something, okay? I know that if I cut pasta out of my diet and work on my abs every single day, that I could have an eight pack, but I am not currently living in that reality. Why? Because I'm Italian and I'm not going to cut pasta out of my diet. There's a difference between knowing something and living in something. And so you may know that the Lord loves you, but are you living in that reality? Is it affecting the decisions you make in this life? You may know that God has penned out your future, but are you living in such a way that you're scared about your job, about your home, about your relationships? See, I'm going to share something with you today that I think many people miss in Scripture. And it's it's kind of some heavy content. PG-13. I don't see any kids in here, so we're going to be okay, everybody? All right, PG-13. It's a little bit of heavy content. And to open it up, I'm going to start with Psalm 89.7. And it says this. This is the New King James Version, the New King Jimmy. Ready? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. God is greatly to be feared. I want to take the next 15, 20 minutes and change to talk to you about the fear of the Lord because I have found in my experience that is one one of the most misunderstood topics in all of scripture and many preachers dance and tiptoe around it or completely ignored at all. But when you have a little bit of time, go ahead and do a search of how many times the Bible references the fear of the Lord. This is something that we must have in our hearts. So let's break that down. What is fear? Fear does not mean, yes, I heard somebody say it. Fear, yes, Fear is not to be afraid of God, right? Because you can't be in an intimate relationship with somebody you're afraid of. Rather, it's speaking of reverential awe, reverence and awe. And I believe maybe I share those definitions. If not, I can share them. Reverence is a deep regard, a deep regard or respect for someone or something. Awe is a feeling of reverential respect and genuine wonder. We've lost our awe. Let me just kind of go back a second to that word fear. The word fear in our English language does mean to be afraid of something, but can I let you in on a little secret without going too too deep? The Hebrews had 12,000 words. English roughly has around 6,000. That's why English is one of the hardest languages to understand or to be able to learn because one word has like six different meanings. And so just if you look at the word love alone, there's like five different definitions of the word love in the Hebrew dictionary, okay? But words get dumbed down as they come into English. And so you say the word awe, which comes from the word awesome, and to us, you think, well, these kicks are pretty awesome, right? Aren't they pretty? (laughs) They're pretty awesome and God's awesome and my hamburger's awesome, and that movie Top Gun 2 was awesome, which it was awesome. It was pretty pretty good if you haven't seen it. Okay, but we have this one word. Do you understand that the Hebrews in their 12,000 word language had certain words that were just reserved for God? They wouldn't use these words to explain anything else. They would only be used to describe God and then translate into the English language. And God is awesome. This burger is awesome. These kicks are awesome. So the enemy is not stupid, right? We must understand. Paul says we are not ignorant of his schemes. And he has infiltrated language to dumb down, to create a familiarity with God. Look, this is something that even plagued Jesus' life as he went into his own hometown. And the Bible says he could not do any mighty works. And then he goes on to explain that a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. What is happening here? They're seeing Jesus as the, the boy that went to school with their son or their daughter, the guy that built the table in their house. And because they don't see him as the son of God, they can't engage their faith, and therefore they cannot receive from him. There's a familiarity. Let me take it on a personal level. How many of you know you may be respected at work, but in your home, your brother, your sister, your in-laws, they don't have that respect for you, right? Because they treat you as common. They treat you as ordinary. A prophet is without honor in his own home town. See, we've lost the awe and reverence for God, the creator of heaven and earth, that opened his mouth and orbits came out, that weighed every drop of water in the palm of his hand, that set every star in the sky with his finger. And we wear t-shirts to say, Jesus is my homeboy. And you you know, you know who wears those shirts? Christians. We've lost that reverence. We've lost who God is in relationship to who we are. Mysteries aren't bad things. God wants us to engage our imagination, engage our faith. There are some questions you're simply not going to have the answer to on this side of eternity, and that's okay. Why, as human beings, do we try to put everything inside of a box? Let me tell you that God will not fit in your theological box. Jesus did not fit in their theological box of the time. And who had the hardest time with Jesus? Not the sinners, the church, the Pharisees. Because they're like, give me step A, B, C, and three. I want to be able to explain this. And God's like, I'm bigger than any box you can try to put me in. Exodus twenty twenty says this, Moses said to the people, do not fear for God is come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. Okay. It sounds like Moses is talking out of both sides of his mouth, right? Do not fear because God's come to test you to see if his fear is inside of you. What the heck does that mean? That doesn't make any sense at all. Moses is differentiating between the two different types of fear. Okay? Do not be afraid or scared of God for God has come to test you to see if his reverential awe is inside of you. What is the purpose of a test? To see what's on the inside of you. Teachers put us in a position to see what's inside of this thing, which often it would be a C or a B for me. (laughs) But God leads us into situations that test to see where our faith is, where our dependence is. And through that, the Holy Spirit will highlight some blind spots that you may have been unaware of, but that are hindering you from growing in your calling and in your relationship with him so that you can uproot those weeds and lies out of your life. How many of you set new goals at the beginning of the year? Every single person, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna get that eight pack, I'm not eating pasta anymore, I'm gonna get the eight pack, I'm getting all these things, but then comes March and you're not doing it anymore. Can I pose this to you, that it's not necessarily the goals and the disciplines that you've begun. It's the fact that you didn't take the time to uproot the weeds that are competing for the same space that are competing for the same nutrients, that are choking out the good things of what God is trying to do in and through your life. Okay? The church needs to do a better job of talking about weed. That's kind of funny. I'm testing it out. Okay. See, do not fear, for God has come to test you to see if his fear is in you. Sometimes we read the word of God, and sometimes the word of God reads us. And as we read those scriptures, we have to ask ourselves the question, have we gotten familiar, complacent, casual in our relationship with God, casual in our assignment inside the body of Christ? If I can fit it in. But do we understand that many of the things that we give our attention and give our time to are going to fade away, but the word of God is eternal. It lasts forever. Relationships last forever. Your kingdom work lasts forever. In fact, God even says that your works are going to be judged. At the great white throne judgment, everyone will give an account of their stewardship, And some things will burn like hay or straw. What are those? Our works, things that we did to build for ourselves. Others will be refined like gold and silver. What is that? Things that we did to build for the kingdom. And the Bible even goes on to say, Some will make it into heaven, yet as through fire, having everything they've done burned up. I believe if we had the ability to harness 1.21 gigawatts and travel back in time with a DeLorean from the judgment seat of Christ, we would tell our younger selves, go all in with Jesus. <laughs> go all in. Don't be concerned with The Walking Dead or whatever the new TV show. And I'm not like trying to know we should, probably shouldn't watch that show just going to say, but what I'm saying is I'm not trying to knock and say, we shouldn't watch movies. We shouldn't read books. But what I am trying to say is you need to have your priorities in alignment with the kingdom, because I can assure you on that day. And the Bible actually says there's going to be tears at the judgment seat. What are those tears? I believe those tears are knowing, man, I should have trusted you more. I should have believed. I knew that you were doing something in my heart, and I never followed through on that. Proverbs 8:13: "All who fear the Lord will hate evil. This is why I hate pride, arrogance, corruption and perverted speech." All right, It's about to get real real in here. Don't say you weren't warned. Sure, we love what God loves. Who doesn't love Chick-fil-A? A good Kirk Cameron movie, right? But that's not the question that I came to ask you today. The question I came to ask is, do you hate what he hates? Or do you tolerate it? And you've got to be honest. It's a rhetorical question. Nobody needs to raise their hand. Um, but it's a question that is worth asking and exploring. Do we hate what he hates? Because I think sometimes as believers, we can tolerate sin. And let me just share this with you. For believers, it's not often the sin that's creeping at your door and knocking on it. I know that the Bible says in Genesis that sin is creeping at your door. But it's often the sin that's at a distance. If you think of David, a man after God's own heart. Those are God's words. David finds himself at home instead of at battle on the top of his house. And he looks across his kingdom and he sees Bathsheba bathing. And instead of turning away, he tolerates sin at a distance. I'd be willing to bet That if Bathsheba were to knock on his front door and to throw herself at him, he would have slammed the door because he would have been prepared. He would have known that this is wrong. But when sin is at a distance, sometimes we become casual and lazy and we tolerate it. And it begins to distort and corrupt and pervert our hearts. And we must be diligent. Sun Tzu, in the book, The Art of War, said the greatest tactical mistake that you can make in war is to underestimate your opponent. He is a deceiver. I believe in a big God and a little devil, but we would be foolish not to understand how the enemy works. And the problem with deception is that you believe with all of your heart that you're right, and in reality, you're wrong. And the Bible says in the end days, even the elect can be deceived. So, moving right along. Isaiah eleven two 2 through 3. The Bible says that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is speaking specifically of Jesus. The spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. So Jesus himself walked in the reverential awe of the fear of the Lord as he executed his ministry. So let's just make this practical. I'm going to give you a few steps. I'm going to share these. What does it actually look like to walk in the fear of the Lord? Because sometimes we share these ideas and they're so lofty. We almost like, we don't give practical steps, which absolves us from having to institute it and implement it in our lives, right? We walk away and we're like, man, that was amazing. We, we clap our hands and we walk away com- completely the same. So I want to give you a few examples Okay, and then I'm going to give you an example of somebody in scripture that actually lived this out. So what does it look like to walk in the fear of the Lord? Number one, I would say you obey him instantly. You obey him when he asks you. Have you ever met somebody that said, yeah, man, you know, I've been feeling the call from God to do this for about seven years. Maybe that's you. I know I've certainly been guilty of it. When somebody shares that, myself included, I'm just demonstrating my lack of the fear of the Lord. Like, I'm just going to sit on this. Number two, you obey him even if it doesn't make sense. How many of us try to like rationalize and like, let me see how this works up. So God asks you to do something. He knows a little something about life because he created it. But you're like, let me wrap my brain around this first, God. Let me see if I can see how this is going to work. And knowingly or unknowingly, you're putting yourself in a position that says, you know more than God. We have to be careful how we reason. Martin Luther said, reason is a whore. That's the PG-13 rating. I just had to, okay. <laughs> Number three, you obey him even if it hurts. Well, that doesn't fit into my Americanized gospel. God's not gonna ask me any, to do anything where you know it's going to harm me or it's going to hurt me. Maybe we should read the book of Acts again. <laughs> Number four, you obey him even if you don't see a benefit. Well, sure, I'll do this, but like, how is this going to prosper me? What if Joseph would have given up on the dream? When he was sold into slavery by his brothers, when he was accused of a crime that he didn't commit, when he was thrown in a dungeon and interpreted the dream of the baker and butler, and just asked one thing in return, will you tell Pharaoh about me? And they didn't. And still, he shared the faithfulness of God. Number five, you obey him to completion. Saul did 99% of what God asked him to do. He just kept the king alive and he lost his kingdom. Partial obedience is disobedience. So who demonstrated the fear of the Lord? I think you've got to look at the life of Abraham. Abraham's going through life God gives them a, God says, hey, look up at the stars, count them. He's like, they're innumerable. So are going to be your sons. Well, God, I'm not going to, you're going to have a son. And God said, in fact, they call you Abram, scratch that. Your new name is Abraham. I wish God was like being in the business of starting to change people's names again. That'd be cool. I'm not Matt. I am Matthias. (laughs) But he's Abraham, right? I mean, he's Abram. God said, no, that's not your name anymore. You're Abraham which means father of a multitude. See, we don't take the time to think about this, but what happened? So Abraham, Abram's in this prayer time. God says, I'm changing your name. And then Abram goes back into the village, right? He's got to buy some eggs, got to buy some whatever they're buying that, that, those days. And they're like, hey Abram, morning. Actually, uh, it's Abraham. Abraham, father of a multitude. Dude, you're old. And your wife, she's good looking, but she's old too. Like this guy's a lot off his rocker. And what's happening? Every time somebody's saying his name, they're speaking this promise over his life. Abram, now Abraham, had to call those things not as they are, but as they could be. And then he has the son and everybody sees it. And it's a beautiful, past the age of reproduction. He has a son. He's enjoying the son. God, you're so faithful. And the Lord says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham didn't have the book of Genesis to read. And You know what the Bible says? Early the next morning. Early the next morning. And there was a three-day journey. So he had a lot of time to think about it. And when he raised that knife into the air, the angel of the Lord stopped and said, Now that I know that you fear God. And he provided a ram in the thicket. And God revealed to him, himself, as Jehovah Jireh, his provider. An aspect of his personality that he had never revealed up until that point because Abraham walked in the fear of the Lord. I'm going to invite the the worship team back up here. I might be clumsily doing that, but that's okay. See, Psalm 103.7 says this. He, speaking of God, made known his ways to Moses his acts to the children of Israel. Do you know how many people just look at God as that sugar daddy in the sky? We need water. We need to get out of this situation. We need to make a way. There's an ocean in front of us. And they just run to God because they know that God is faithful. But Moses knew God's ways. Moses even convinced God to change his mind once because Moses was walking closely with the Lord. And the Israelites wanted to keep God at a distance. See, can I let you in on a secret? The fear of the Lord isn't to be scared. It's to be scared to be away from God. It's not to find out where the line is and to see what I can get away with in sin when I first got saved, I literally called my youth pastor and I asked him how far I could go with my girlfriend. That is so horrible, dude. I'm just being real. I'm just being real with you. I had no clue. I had no idea because I was still looking at the world through a worldly perspective. What's in it for me? What can I get? And the fear of the Lord is to say, God, you made me you know what's best for me. You know what makes me and what breaks me. And I want to be as close to you as I possibly can. Because I want to walk in every moment that you penned in that book. See, Proverbs nine ten, and we don't have this on the screen. I just added it. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You've probably heard that scripture before. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Think about the beginning of math. Addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. Think about the beginning of English. Nouns, verbs, pronouns. Can you imagine building your life, your career without that elementary doctrine? Without that beginning? You wouldn't get very far, would you? The Bible is literally saying that the fear of the Lord, this revelation caught inside of your heart is the beginning for you to walk in closeness and intimacy with God and to walk out the destiny and the dreams that he's placed on the inside of your heart. But if you get it twisted, there's gonna be like this wall because you're not seeing God the way that you need to see him. See, I want to invite you to explore these words that I'm about to throw on the screen. And I'm going to actually ask you to stand. And as we read this scripture, I want to invite you to read it with fresh eyes. Eyes of awe. Eyes of wonder. Read it as if you're reading it for, for the very first time. With a childlike imagination and a childlike faith. It says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp. This is where the awe comes in, how wide Long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, that is work, Within us. I'll close with this, said every pastor ever, right? (laughs) I was reading a National Geographic. You guys remember those magazines? And it had like the ocean on there. Did you know that the world is made up 70% of water? And it was saying that man has only explored less than 15% of the ocean. Now I'm all about sending a Tesla to Mars, like that's cool, but... Think about the ocean that's here. We've yet to explore 15% of it. And I think that's an image of most of our relationship with God. The Bible says that deep calls unto deep, not shallow to shallow. And I believe that God is inviting each and every single one of us to explore the love, the mystery, and the wonder of God but we have to have that reverential awe. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for every single person under the sound of my voice. I have preached what you've commanded me to preach, and I believe that your words have been planted like seeds in the soil of their hearts. And I am asking you to expand their capacity, expand their vision, give them dreams, give them words of knowledge, open up your scriptures to them in a way that they've never read or experienced before. Let them have that childlike wonder, Father, that reverence and that awe when thinking of you. And Father, let that be the key to intimacy with you. Let them walk with you as close as a man can walk with you, as close as a woman can walk with you. Reveal yourself in greater measure. And I pray that this church would be unified like never before. And where there is unity, God commands his blessing. And so I encourage each of you as you pray to have your lives changed, that you would receive these promises by faith and trust and believe that God is going to expand your vision and expand your capacity. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And let's continue in a heart posture of surrender, in reverence, and awe as the worship team leads us in this final song.